Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Support for this podcast comes from Cullen's Canned Beans, Ontario-grown canned organic beans without the mystery. Look for Cullen's Beans at your better grocery store or find them online at cullensfoods.com. That's C-U-L-L-E-N-S. F-O-O-D-S dot com and anywhere on social media at Collins Foods. This episode is brought to you by Canada Land's founding sponsor, FreshBooks, the invoicing and accounting solution that's built for owners and their clients. FreshBooks users save up to 46 hours a month on admin tasks. They also get paid 18 days faster on average. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash backbench Enter Backbench in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The Prime Minister who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. You're drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic. Uh, sorry, 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 and I'm really sorry. Hi, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a new podcast about Canadian politics and why we all need a T-shirt that says "crap." Today on the show, different levels of government are squabbling over sick leave, borders, and vaccines as we're being hit by a devastating third wave. Where did the Team Canada spirit we were promised go? And there's yet another report on sexual misconduct in the Canadian military, because it's 2021. It's going to be a light and breezy first episode of The Backbench. Joining me this week is Drew Brown from St. John's, Newfoundland, formerly of the Atlantic Bubble. Hey, Drew. (laughs) Hey, what's up? We also have Emily Nicola in Montreal, who can now stay out of her house until 9.30. Hi. And last but certainly not least, Selena Caesar Chavan, an actual former backbencher. Hi there. Okay, backbench, let's listen to something Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said last August. Fighting COVID-19 is a Team Canada effort. And since March- When the pandemic started, there seemed to be a sense that everyone was in this together. Krista Freeland even mentioned that Doug Ford was her therapist. A lot has happened since then. A lot of death, a lot of blame, a lot of vaccine chaos. Things are bad. I'm based in Ontario, where I've been reporting on the devastating effects of the third wave. In Ontario, intensive care units have hit a new milestone with 900 patients in critical care. Alberta has it even worse. It now has more new daily confirmed cases than any other province or state. The new COVID variants have even managed to pop the Atlantic bubble, where cases have risen and interprovincial travel remains shut down. 
Back in February, the Public Health Agency of Canada warned us that if we loosen public health guidelines, this is what we'd see. Measures must be stronger, stricter and sustained long enough to suppress... But many provinces ignored that advice, and many of them pointed fingers at the federal government, blaming international travel or vaccine procurement issues. Ontario tried to pass the buck on sick days. Some premiers blamed their citizens for not being careful enough. And when Atlantic provinces were called on to help Ontario, Nova Scotia made it clear it wouldn't send vaccines. So all of this has me wondering, what happened to that cozy Team Canada spirit? Could we have worked together better, and would that have prevented the kind of disasters we're seeing now in places like Alberta and Ontario? Drew, what do you think? Well, the entire experience of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, has been a really good illustration in how uh, confederation is not exactly an even arrangement, and that maybe there are some major problems in having the provinces be responsible for healthcare services without some kind of unified national strategy. I mean, obviously, Newfoundland and Labrador has been extraordinarily fortunate um, throughout the course of COVID-19. I think we've had altogether less than a thousand cases since this started. I mean, mostly I think this is, is comes down to geography. It is actually very hard to get here. And it is sort of really geographically dispersed in terms of population. So that has definitely helped in terms of controlling the the spread of the virus. But also, I don't know if it's ever been explicitly mandated that we're aiming for COVID zero, but that's basically what we're doing. And every time there is a flare up, it's like a really sort of hard lockdown um, until things kind of dissipate, which has not been the case uh, elsewhere in Canada for reasons I don't totally understand other than (laughs) like the fact that, you know, Ontario elected a clown and uh, Alberta elected a monster. Both of those provinces, I think like, I mean, they drive the spread in this province as well, right? Because so much of our economy is based on rotation workers leaving Newfoundland and Labrador to fly to work sites in Alberta or Ontario and then sort of like bring back cases here. We're just really lucky that um, because we kept things so low, there's really no uncontrolled spread. We can still do contract tracing and, um, you know, people can isolate properly. And we only really had that sort of like one bad outbreak in February where everyone got kind of complacent. But I think uh, that was a, a solid wake up call for a lot of people. I can't help but think that this is a real sort of like failure of, of federalism as a system of government. Can I just expand on what Drew said? Because it, like you talk about federalism and you say, well, you know, the provinces are responsible and stay in your jurisdiction. And this is a global pandemic. This is not like, you know, your everyday occurrence of things that, you know, we should just keep going, getting going along to get along. This is a global pandemic. People around the world are dying. There are nationals international strategies around collecting data on vaccine. Everybody's sort of like looking at the highest level to try to make this thing work globally. So you have to at some point say, look, we're going to have a national strategy around vaccinations. We're not going to let the provinces do what they want. We're not going to let them say, hey, on Christmas and evenings and holidays, we're not going to vaccinate. Because we just can't, because we just want, no, you put in a national strategy. This is unprecedented times. So you cannot expect the provinces to just do what they want. And then the municipalities, look at Toronto. Toronto's collecting race-based data. Ontario is not. How do we know where the hotspots are? Because Toronto took the time to put the investment in to collect the data that was required. So a, a national strategy is what is absolutely necessary. Now, when we think about this, this Team Canada approach, when you say things like Doug Ford as my therapist, and believe me, I love Christia Freeland, so I'm not dissing her, but when you say things like 
Doug Ford could be your therapist. That set us up for this, the rest of the, the downfall. Like that was the tip of the iceberg. And then everything went down after that because you can't say inappropriate things as a leader. <laughs> and I feel like this is almost her fault by just even setting that up. Um, at some point, somebody needs to step in and say, we're going to do this nationally. We're not going to ask if you need help with the Red Cross. We're not going to ask if you need the National Guard. We're just going to do it because people are dying. But how do we do it? Because healthcare is a provincial issue. Vaccine supply, while a federal responsibility, the delivery is a responsibility of the provinces. <laughs> At some point, we need to put that aside. At some, This is unprecedented times. We cannot do the same thing that we've done in regular times right now. I find it interesting. It's a very, like, not... It's a very rock reflex that if you want competence, it needs to be federal and national. What if the federal government was the incompetent one? <laughs> Would you be calling for a national strategy then? If they were they were being the issue right now, it's the provinces that are the issue, you want more centralized power. If you had that centralized government and it was the federal government messing up, would you be in agreement with that? What we want is good government and competence. And doesn't, it doesn't really matter whichever government is being competent. What the real issue has been is basically trying to explain the gaps between the different strategies. Why is, for example, do we have a curfew here and Ontario has lockdowns and all that different vocabulary? Everybody's been comparing and contrasting. That's been creating a lot of chaos, I think, in a lot of people's minds. However, if it was too centralized, then people would complain that uh, the realities across the country are very different, that this is the country the size of a continent. And if we had a one-size-fit-all approach, everybody would still be complaining. And so I feel like whatever this this is, we're all going to be complaining because actually it's a pandemic and it's really hard. It's been more than a year and we're all exhausted. Therefore, we're going to complain about our governments. And so there's a lot that blame that needs to be put on on scientific decisions. And I think that's what Doug Ford, for example, is taking crap on uh, recently, uh, just not following, for example, public health advice at all. But that could happen, I think, at any any level of government. And I think uh, if some cities or some parts of the country do not want, for example, to collect race-based data, you can try to oppose that from Ottawa if you want, but good luck with that. <laughs> I, think, I think if people don't want to do it locally, it's going to be a mess. So there needs to be, if, if there was a will, uh, across the country, there would be a way for sure. Emily, you're in Montreal, which was the worst part of the country uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. The city has avoided the same level of disaster and tragedy that Ontario and Alberta are now seeing in the third wave. Should the federal government take a page out of Montreal and Quebec's books and apply that nationally? It's kind of hard to know what is actually working in Montreal right now. I'm seeing the, and in Quebec generally, I'm seeing the numbers are dropping. There's so many factors, there's so many variables, and I'm not a public health expert. However, I'm just glad <laughs> that it's going well. On Monday night, this is the first time Montreal will have the right to be out after 9.30 p.m. Ooh, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> this is amazing freedom. But I think... Let me just rant about one last thing that's not necessarily related to your question. I find we are impossible to listen to as Canadians. If I was somebody uh, who's not from either the US, the UK, Canada, listening to us complain about how slow the vaccines are, we are amongst like the most privileged in the world when it comes to access to vaccination. And I feel like I'm listening to people in the news all the time talking about how we're worse than the UK and the US as if these were the only three countries that exist in the world. And I'm probably fed up with that. I'm 
I'm fed up with people dying in India and in Pakistan and us being like, what about our vaccines? I feel like it's hard for everybody, but also there's such some massive amount of like white Western privilege going on in the way that we're having this conversation in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we all need to take a chill uh, because we are unsinable from the point of view of anybody that's not in the first world right now. I'm 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 slightly speechless because I agree with all of that but also I think that's exactly why I'm frustrated because we are privileged and and we have the structural and institutions in place mm. to have done this so much better and that's what we were promised at the beginning right this is a first world mm-hmm. country we had the most amount of vaccines bought right, we right. came together at the beginning and now it fell apart and i don't know i expected better naively i expected better because this was a public health crisis drew the atlantic bubble has sent doctors to ontario is that going to start the will or is that just going to continue the whole white savior publicity stunt that Canada is sort of going for right now? I want to say this very carefully because I think it is important to acknowledge that, like, yes, the nine doctors and nurses who have volunteered to go to Ontario are doing something great. They should be commended for their bravery of going directly into, like, basically like a public health war zone. But yeah, if we're being realistic, we do also need to acknowledge that this is more of a symbolic gesture than any sort of, like, real help. I mean, like, the Canadian Medical Association said that if we actually did want to help, we would sort of, like, reallocate our vaccines. Because, like, quite Mm. frankly, you know, like... The need to get everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador vaccinated is not as high as it is in places with basically uncontrolled community spread of a number of different virus variants. But like that would be very politically unpopular for a premier who already kind of has a history of sort of like white savior PR complex stuff, right? His claim to fame before entering politics by becoming premier as a like entry level job was that he started a medical charity to send doctors down to Haiti after the earthquake in 2011. So I think... Yeah, I think ultimately this this is, I mean, this is a PR stunt, right? That, yeah, plays into a number of sort of like savior tropes that in this province historically our politicians love. And now we get to do it for the rest of Canada, right? Even though like it's a drop in the bucket, right? I think Ontario needs like 4,000 nurses or something over the next four months and we sent nine. And we weren't even allowed, like they wouldn't even allow anybody from like Labrador to join this troop because like the shortage in Labrador is like really, really bad. You know, it's part of the course for I think like Canadian politics where like we like to do grand symbolic gestures in other places rather than like address our own actual problems because it's easy and it looks good in the media. And I think that's what is happening here for sure. Yeah, we should have reallocated our vaccines because like, you know, we're we are fine. We have like 51 active cases now and they're all related to travel and they're all self-isolated. We could spare some vaccines for Ontario. Full stop. So then should I just like give up hope on this Team Canada spirit? Is it just not going to come? Like, is is there, you know, and it's not just me, right? Doctors are calling for a national circuit breaker event in, in the pages of McLean's and s- several provinces have imposed tougher restrictions. And, and yeah, we're still seeing backlash to that. You know, governments are still squabbling. Selena, should I just give up hope on the Team Canada spirit or, or do you think it might come back? Well, you know, I hope we don't give up hope on the Team Canada spirit because right now it's not just the fact that we need more vaccines or we need um, a more coordinated strategy. We need to look deeper at who is actually dying. And, you know, as frustrated as we are with, you know, to Emily's point around conversations around, you know, um, are we getting vaccine quick enough? Are things working best. When you drill down, it's racialized people that are dying. 
80% of the impact of COVID-19 um, is falling on 52% of the population in Toronto, which is racialized. 9% is Black and up to 30% of the impact on the Black community, 25% of hospitalizations, meaning that these individuals are dying. When we think of the percentage of women, racialized women who are nurses, PSWs, these individuals are dying. So we cannot give up on this Team Canada approach, but we also have to be really real about holding our government to account with the decisions that they've made that ended up killing people. My frustration is having people banging pots at the beginning of a pandemic at seven o'clock every night for the heroes. And then when the heroes they actually show their face as racialized women, we don't need uh, sick benefits. We could give them three days. We don't need a coordinated strategy. We don't need all. No, these are people that look like me that are dying. And so there is a lot of frustration when we talk about vaccine rollout and public policy that ends up killing people. So it, it sounds like the backbench is proposing a motion to <laughs> bring back the Team Canada spirit, not just in governments, but among people. Like, we need to better care for our communities and celebrate what's going on. It can't just be yes. a one-off thing. Like, everyone's tired, yeah. um, policymakers to workers. And the onus can't just be on governments to create Team Canada spirit. If, if Maybe if we build it, they'll figure it out and they'll build it too. Right? Emily, do you agree? Uh, I don't know if that Team Canada spirit actually ever existed, and that's very much coming... As like somebody who's in Quebec, like I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> uh, however, uh, I think if you're if if what you mean by that, uh, if forget the flag waving for a minute, is actual social uh, solidarity and uh, working across inequalities and making sure that we care for the most vulnerable in our societies and actually ask the question why those people are vulnerable in the first place and how we keep vulnerabilizing them. And so I think that's the question uh, because otherwise the question that we're having right now or the big issue that we're having now in the world is like vaccine nationalism and nationalism in general and how everybody's just caring about their own country. And so that's why I'm kind of like, not necessarily in favor of this motion because I'm like, I want team world. If this is a global pandemic, then we should be on team global. However, uh, if you mean talking about social inequalities uh, locally and making sure that we are putting in place public policies that actually matter uh, and actually beneficial for everyone and especially uh, racialized folks who have been overrepresented in essential workers, then yes, absolutely, I'm, I'm in favor of that. This episode is brought to you by Canada Land's founding sponsor, FreshBooks, the invoicing and accounting solution that's built for owners and their clients. If you're a freelancer or small business owner, you know how much time can get eaten up by admin tasks. FreshBooks users save up to 46 hours a month on stuff like building and following up on invoices. They also get paid 18 days faster on average and increase their return on investment by 11 times. FreshBooks is also a crowd favorite. With an easy-to-navigate dashboard, over 3,000 business owners have rated it an average of 4.5 out of 5 stars on GetApp. That sounds much fancier than the Excel spreadsheet that I use to keep track of shit, <laughs> so maybe I should give this a shot. Is FreshBooks a response to the Phoenix case handle? Is that what <laughs> Oh, sorry. I, I, oh, sorry. I was still on the government thing. I, my apologies. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash backbench, enter backbench in the how did you hear about us section.
Jones. I actually have a point of order. What's your point of order, Selena? This happened in March and it does have some relevance to today. So in March, when uh, our committees asked to have uh, staffers go to committee meetings, the government, the liberal government said uh, no, and they brought the ministers. And, you know, as backbenchers, Madam Speaker, you know that our committees are the, the central gut to our democracy. And, you know, this point of order or, or POO for short is really important to ensure that we get that central gut of our democracy functioning and flowing properly. If we cannot be able to have testimony from those who we feel are appropriate at our committees, where else are we supposed to exert our very limited power as backbenchers? And, you know, we're seeing scandals coming up, and I hope we talk about it, you know, throughout. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This, this podcast, but more scandals are going to come up, and we're going to want to get testimony from those staffers who are impeding our actual functioning of this parliament. So, Madam Speaker, I'm hoping that you would take this point of order, this this. POO and really uh, think about it because as a backbencher, I want to be able to exert my power on my committees and bring those who are able to talk about issues, whether it's the WE scandal or anything else to to our committees to speak about. That is an actual point of order, but not the point of this exercise. <laughs> this is what happens when you have an actual like former MP <laughs> on the back bench. It's like you just took that to a whole next level of actual seriousness. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's good. I actually do have a point of order to follow up on that. So in exchange for us, you know, for my province sending those nine uh doctors and nurses to Ontario, can you guys send like a goodwill mission to like set up committees here in our <laughs> local parliament because like we we don't have committees in the house assembly like they don't exist that would be a great help actually if you know in exchange for the healthcare relief you taught us how to like build a functioning legislature we could really use that here what would we call this mission like committees restored atlantic provinces crap like something like that <laughs> i think i think well I, I think it's important to like leave the leave the maritimes out of this because like they do sort of have functioning governments i think this is really just a newfoundland legislature problem like we just don't we never really set it up properly over the past 180 years it's just kind of been winged for a long time Are you impressed that i came up with crap that quickly i it's so great it was so yeah. great I think we should make t-shirts. Yeah, I would definitely I would definitely wear a crap t-shirt. I'm a big supporter of crap now, for sure. Crap and poo t-shirts. Okay. I'm glad we're setting the tone here. Uh, Madam Speaker, I do have a point of order. What's your point of order, Emily? It's about something uh, the Premier of Quebec said in the last couple of days in a private meeting with the Association basically of Business Owners in Quebec. And he basically said that um, he didn't want to have immigrants that were earning below uh, 56K a year because he's trying really hard to basically increase the average pay of Quebecers. And when immigrants come in and are taking in low-paying jobs, it doesn't help with his numbers. 
So I think it's really interesting that he's saying that in basically locker room conversations with business owners and not to the media directly. And it's just because it's been leaked, leaked that we know that. I know this is serious stuff, but I just wanted to share with you, Madam Speaker, because this is not parliamentary language. But yeah, this is kind of fucked up. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not a real point of order, <laughs> but, you know, we'll take it. Thank you. I'll bring it to QP instead. <laughs> Before we start our second segment, a quick content warning to listeners. This discussion will contain references to sexual violence. Remember that infamous line when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had just gotten elected and he was so proud about the fact that he had gender parity in his cabinet? Because it's 2015. Well, it's now 2021, and his government is deep in a scandal about sexual misconduct in the military, with the opposition claiming a cover-up. Jonathan Vance, who was the highest-ranking officer in Canada's military, is facing allegations of sexual misconduct from two female subordinates. He retired in January. The allegations came out in February and led to an investigation as well as a House of Commons committee. One of his accusers, Major Kelly Brennan, says Vance fathered two of her children and that he tried to intimidate her into lying to investigators. Vance denies all allegations. Nearly three months after the initial allegations came out publicly, the federal government has done two of their favorite things. Apologize to every person in the Department of National Defense who has been affected by sexual harassment and violence. I'm truly sorry. And commission a review. Madam Louise Arbour, former Supreme Court Justice, has agreed to lead an independent external comprehensive review of our institutional policies and culture. In other words, it's not just about Vance. In late February, Vance's replacement, Admiral Art McDonald, stepped down two months after taking the role a month prior. He faced separate sexual misconduct complaint from a female junior officer back when he was captain. In early March, we found out that the human resources guy for the Canadian forces was also being investigated over multiple allegations of inappropriate behavior with female subordinates. That same month, Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor, a senior and widely respected infantry officer on track for top leadership, quit. Taylor said in her resignation email that she had been, quote, both a victim of and participant in a damaging cycle of silence, quote. If all of this sounds systemic, it's because it is, and we have known about this culture for so many years. In 2015, the Deschamps Review found that underlying sexualized culture in the Canadian Armed Forces was hostile to women and LGBTQ members and conducive to more serious incidents of sexual harassment and assault. That led to Operation Honor, which was General Jonathan Vance's mission. He established a Sexual Misconduct Response Center. And we now know from two subsequent Statistics Canada reports that Operation Honor did next to nothing. So what's happening now? This past weekend, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan faced hard questions on the West Block where he was asked five times whether he was aware that the accusations against Jonathan Vance were sexual in nature. Five times the defense minister refused to give a yes or no answer. Was your office or were you personally aware that the nature of the claim was sexual or to do with allegations about the chief's conduct with women? When the complaint was brought forward, we immediately notified the Privy Council office. But, but um, were you aware that it was sexual in nature? 
We did not know the details. It was only... In March, he said he didn't want to hear about the complaints because it would politicize the issue. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau denies that he knew anything about it, although it has emerged that his chief of staff, Katie Telford, knew about the allegations in 2018. Selena, do you believe the government when it says that they didn't know about the allegations against Jonathan Vance? No, I don't. And when, you know, the prime minister spoke about this and said, you know, it went through a process, albeit at the same time saying that the process wasn't adequate. Like there's there's so many things wrong here. The process is inadequate. That was his words, not mine. But it still went through the process. He didn't want to politicize it. He didn't want it to be a political thing, but it went through an inadequate process but it went through the process. The next thing is that you are getting advice from this person who has one of the biggest budget line items in your in your federal budget. You are taking advice, you are listening as, as a feminist government and knowing that there is an accusation, just, just an accusation, just a, a something. You would think that you would want to know. And I would say this, which I think is the thing that really gets me thought about like when you're asking these questions to the prime minister and he says, well, it went through a process an inadequate one, but it went through a process. I didn't know instead of some, instead of what a, a leader would do would say, look, this happened. I should have known about it. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to just accept that accountability. He does not. And to the people that this has impacted, to know that your leadership understands that a process is flawed and inadequate and still does nothing speaks volumes to the fact that it is 2021. I'm old enough to remember in 2014 um, in the Liberal Caucus when there were sort of like allegations of sexual misconduct against two backbench MPs and they were just immediately terminated, you know, like no tolerance for this stuff. Like, also, we don't need to know the details. We're just going to like deal with it. And it's like, it's such a, it's like, it's a total difference between the way that was handled and the way this is now being handled by the government. Um, Now that they're, I guess, like in government and have like a a major problem they just don't want to deal with. It's really disappointing, especially from an ostensibly feminist government that made a big deal out of its feminist credentials for the last six years. To your point about feminism, I think it's really important to unpack what feminism actually means in terms of our understanding of politics and power in the law, and even the way that we do processes. If I remember the facts correctly, what happened is that there was an allegation the victim was not ready to go forward on record because of fears of repercussion for her career, because that's what happens in the military. There's just such a toxic climate that it's not safe to speak out. And so according to the Minister of Defense, um, because there is no formal allegation, sure, you can flip it up to private counsel, but if private counsel doesn't have a formal complaint, then they cannot do anything. So that's their flawed due process. And I think that that kind of thinking speaks to how unprepared people are mm-hmm. to actually challenge rape culture. Because this is at a point where people are so afraid to speak up, then you cannot be like, yeah, but the person didn't speak up. So mm-hmm. like, what could I do? And that's basically what they're saying. That's basically what their defense is in lay terms, in terms of if you're not following this story too closely, is that you're basically saying, well, women didn't speak up, so what could I do? 
rather than saying like, oh, there's an allegation circulating and that person is so t- too afraid to put it in formal terms. Therefore, it means there's the t- climate is so toxic that as a minister or as a government, it's my responsibility to really investigate this because it means that it's really, really bad. And that's something that I'm seeing in a lot of different work environments in Canada where people feel like things are fine when they're actually the worst because they're past the point where people are actually comfortable mm-hmm. speaking up against the problem. And then people think that there's a crisis happening when things are actually improving. Mm-hmm. Because things are improving when people get to the point where they start speaking. But there is this thing where people take silence for a good sign. And I think it's something that I'm seeing on issues of sexism and racism in so many different work environments. And I think that's the thinking we need to challenge. And then the conservatives are calling for the head of Kitty Telford role and whatever. We, you know, you can have a conversation about pointing out individuals' responsibility and all of this, like we do in all scandals. But frankly, I don't think that if we're, if we are not having this conversation about this flawed logic, then we don't understand what feminism is when it comes to not only just applying the system to women, but also actually rethinking what it means to be safe in the processes, what it means to be safe in the legal environment, what it means to be safe when you're doing a complaint, and what it means for that complaint not to re-traumatize you. And so as long as we're not ready to have that conversation, we can make as many heads rolls as possible. Conservatives can make a show out of this. And it's not going to change anything for women who have actually been armed in the Canadian military. I feel like it's become an unfortunate playbook where we see a scandal of sexual misconduct and then, you know, people rally and be like, oh, my God, this is wrong. Someone needs to fix it. Someone needs to do something. And then at the end of it, all we get is maybe an apology and a stupid report that really just says the same things that we all inherently know and nothing changes. So what can we do for the members of the military the women and men who serve the country, how do we build back trust in the institution for them? Drew, let's start with you. Uh, That's a pretty big question. This does need to be politicized a little bit in that the government needs to like make a decision to actually address this seriously and not like kick the can down a road and like another report. This is a government that loves to talk a really big game and then not really do a whole lot about the things that it's talking about. And I think that we just need someone to show that they're taking this seriously, because right now I don't think we have that. Can I ask, what does justice look like, Emily? That's a really good question, because I think we're talking about military being oppressive against women. Uh, I grew up close to the Valcartier military base when there's been reports for years of relationship between Valcartier soldiers and far-right groups in Quebec. So we're talking about racism as well. So I think trying to unpack, undo completely unhinge toxic masculinity basically from the military complex i mean we need to understand that this is not just you're going to fix a couple processes i think we need to take the time as well to go back like what the military actually is what it is about what it is for as an institution and how like the role that violence plays in the culture of anything that has to do with military and war, basically, and why that kind of environment necessarily is connected to increased likelihood of violence against women. And I think the one thing that really um, is not part of this conversation that I wish was part of it as well is all the allegations that have come as well from women in the countries that the Canadian military has been in who've also been raped. Mm-hmm. Civilians in Haiti. 
civilians in East Africa. And like how we're not also having conversations about those women and how we're not having conversations about how Canadian police officers and Canadian military are also, you know, behaving abroad while there is even less checks in place when it's coming to those populations in war zones. We don't know, you know, Canadian military in Afghanistan. I'd like to know, you know, what happened there as well, if that's what they're doing to their own. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of questions that I have. And so my own relationship with military is not going to be fixed by a couple of processes. I think I'm just there to ask the really big, broad questions. However, I think there is also room for a conversation about just making it safer for the people uh, who are a part of those those ranks. Everybody uh, deserves, you know, safety and everybody deserves a work environment that is not this kind of toxicity. Uh, and I think that's also a conversation to be had. But let's not kid ourselves. The military is not just if we were having conversation about sexual assault in whatever other department. Like, it's a very specific thing. And that needs to be acknowledged as well. It was interesting that you asked about, you know, building back trust and justice. Where do you, what does that even mean? How do how do you get justice? Have have we ever seen like you're talking to a a black female? We don't see justice. I never talk about justice. I talk about possibly getting to a point where we have some equity in our system by dismantling, by breaking it down, by removing the structure of the system itself. But justice is something that is so elusive. Who who gets justice? when there is racism and sexism and oppression that exists, that has been, the system has been built on and reinforced by <laughs> that. It's almost like a, a joke. I think that's the funniest part of this conversation that we've had talking about justice. <laughs> but, but to be clear, to Emily's point, when we think about things like, and love it or hate it is not the point. I want people to think about when, you know, Black Lives Matter calls for like defunding the police. You know, we really need to think about what that means in terms of not just a national uh, conversation, to Emily's point, the international uh, conversation of our military and other jurisdictions. It has thrived on white supremacy. It has got its oxygen from it breathes on patriarchy. This is how it survives. So you have to cut off its life supply and start it over again, tinkering around the outsides. I don't care how many reports, how many, how many reports we commission, it's not going to fix a system that is so entrenched in this. I'm going to use some of uh, Drew's words, some bullshit. <laughs> Drew, do you have any other words to add? Uh, I mean, other than just like, hell yes to everything that has been said here already. And yeah, it's a real, you know, like how do you remove like structures of violence from an institution that is fundamentally premised on the organization and use of violence? That is a question above my pay grade at this moment. It does require dismantling and just like completely restructuring the entire operation of like what is even is a military. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I just want to flag that this conversation gets emotional very quickly. Part of it is because there's always when you're trying to bring that level of analysis, then people will be like, you're against the men and women who served, basically. And I think it's really important yeah. to name that. The men and the women who served are the ones that are hurting. They're the ones that we're trying to protect. But yeah. Exactly. So basically, by standing in solidarity with victims of sexual assault in the army, 
we need to open this conversation about what the army actually is about. And this is actually no disrespect to any of those women. At the contrary, if we cannot have that conversation, I personally don't know how we're going to actually address the issue. And that's, I think, the conversation that we're trying to have. But I'm foreshadowing the you're being you're disrespecting those women. And I'm just I, I feel the need to say mm. this is not about that. But this is about actually if you're trying to fix the issue, you're going to need to go there. And it's not going to be an easy conversation. It's going to be a painful conversation. But it's really necessary to go there in a way that's actually respectful and thoughtful and like real. So on that heavy but important note, we will adjourn our very first episode. That was The Backbench. We'll be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Where can people find you, Emily? Uh, on Twitter, uh, E-M-I-L-I-E uh, underscore N-I. And I write as well in Le Devoir in, in the Montreal Gazette. Amazing. Drew? Um, people can find me on Twitter at Drewfinland, like Newfoundland, but with my name. And uh, also at the independent.ca because we just got a fancy new website over the weekend. So everyone should go check it out. Amazing. Selena? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, if you're so inclined, at <laughs> I am Selena CC. I-A-M-C-E-L-I-N-A-C-C. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.